Welcome to ARC, a Tolkien podcast. We are on episode 61. Wow. Go us. It's a big accomplishment. It's a big accomplishment. I have to say. Yeah, you know, and you know what? It's it's rare that we say an episode is a big accomplishment on the show. But today, we never say that. So you know, when we say it, we must really mean it. This this is big. Sixty-one. But actually, so okay. No, this what episode is, is actually this? not particularly big. Uh, this is book. Uh, this is <laughs> the book, Lord of the Rings. <laughs> book six, the Lord of the Rings. It's a heck of a book. We're on book six, chapter eight, the mm-hmm. Scouring of the Shire. Yeah, anyway, the episode, okay, the number of the episode is not special, no. But it is actually a pretty big chapter, and it's a pretty famous chapter, and one of those really memorable ones that people always think about, I think, after they yeah. read the book. It's, it stays with you. It's a chapter that stays with you, I think. Uh, it is, you know, it's not really my favorite chapter. Right? We, we'll talk about why uh, a little bit in the in the episode, but uh, it is iconic in so many ways. Uh, I'm going to do my best job to summarize it here. It's very eventful, so please bear with me. Uh, hopefully, if you're listening to this podcast, you just know the book already or are reading along so that you can follow with my confusing summary here. But I'm going to try and distill this chapter to its uh, essentials. So, wish me luck. All right. Um, Good luck. Thank you. So, Hobbits, they've arrived back at the Shire. We're talking by Hobbits. I mean Frodo, Sam, Mary, Pippin. There are yeah. gates around the Shire now. They find that everything is sort of out of whack, and there are houses and things built around near this gate. And they learn from the hobbits there. They're told that there's a chief, and that chief is Lotho Baggins, who bought Baggin from Frodo way back at the beginning of The Lord of the Rings. Uh, the chief has some kind of big man, and that's all we know. Uh, Bill Fernie, our old friend from Bree, with the sort of sketchy-looking guy from Bree, he is running the gate, but the hobbits actually scare him off. He runs out. Uh, away down the road uh the hobbits end up being arrested by sheriffs and i use arrested here loosely because it's sort of comical and that the sheriffs insist that their hobbits are arrested and they say well we're just walking that way anyway uh so if you want to follow behind us or follow ahead rather go for it but uh they don't take them seriously at all and they just laugh at these sheriffs uh so it's pretty funny um keep in mind frodo and company are all armed at this point and they're really confident and they're not they're clad in mail yeah so they march to Hobbiton. They find it sort of industrialized almost. There's houses everywhere. There's chimneys with smoke. Trees are cut down. There's ruffians everywhere. Um, that's the word used throughout this chapter, ruffians. So some kind of bandit people um, who are men, right? They're not hobbits. So they scare off some of these ruffians. They blow the horn of Rohan to summon the hobbits across the Shire to resistance. Throughout this time, Frodo keeps urging the hobbits not to not kill anyone, even though um, Merry and Pippin are a bit more like, eh, that might be necessary. They then ambush some of these ruffians at night. Uh, they set some more traps for them the next day. They do end up killing some ruffians, despite Frodo's desire not to. It is necessary, just like Mary and Pippin said it would be. Uh, they go to Bag End. It's been trashed. There have been houses built up around it. Uh, they find Saruman there, and Frodo orders, orders Saruman to leave. Um, and as he's leaving, Saruman stabs Frodo. But his mithril male repels it. And uh, Wormtongue is there as well. Wormtongue uh, gets insulted by Saruman, as he always is over and over again. Saruman points out that Wormtongue killed Lotho. But Wormtongue says, well, you made me do it. And he just gets insulted more. And Wormtongue gets mad enough that he actually takes out his own knife, and he jumps on Saruman's back and cuts his throat. And then he's running away, and the hobbit archers shoot him down. Um, and the chapter ends, really, with a mist rising from Saruman, 
and it's described as looking to the west, but then a wind comes and blows it away and mm-hmm. vanishes. Yeah. yeah. This is a, it's okay, actually a pretty long chapter. Extreme, it's extremely long. It's one of the longer ones, I think, in the whole book, isn't it? It's got to be up there. Yeah. Would you rather do some broad themes in the beginning, or would you like to go events first and then themes? We could start with... Let's start with themes. Okay. Um, we Because we... we we started talking about them last episode. We had these themes here, like how you cannot really truly go back home after some kind of traumatic experience. It mm-hmm. will be changed. On a sort of social societal level, you have the theme that war doesn't stay abroad. It somehow affects you in your physical home. Uh, so you have sort of the like literal physical meaning of this chapter, I suppose, as well as the more... I don't know, metaphorical or like internal like character-based meaning of it. Uh, and I think both those are really powerful themes. Uh, I think we, maybe we could start there and build on that and like what it means that the Shire here was not left untouched by right. the War of the Ring. Yeah. Um, I mean, so one way to look at that, um, so there is, we've talked before how the Lord of the Rings, wants, one thing that's so great about it is how it interweaves uh sort of um, high myth and sort of uh, very tangible stories about, uh, you know, sort of uh, real people or, you know, hobbits doing things. Um, This, you can think about this as a return to uh, sort of real uh, stories and sort of more like Mm -hmm. close to reality narrative rather than this sort of like um, fantasy, high, highly symbolic uh, world that they've been going out into. And so you can see that they're coming back here and the, uh, Evils that they have gripped with symbolically are present and embodied in the real world for them. Yeah. And so, you know, the conflict between good and evil is not just something that, you know, is a, uh, you know, a uh, theological discussion or, uh, uh, you know, philosophy. It's uh, something real and instantiated here at, in Hobbiton. Mm-hmm. It's uh, an interesting contrast with The Hobbit as a book in that in that book, Bilbo gets to go off into the world of myth and just come back and sort of use what he learned and, and how he grew and just go back to his old life, which hasn't really changed. At least like, like the location hasn't really. Right. Um, and just apply his lessons. Whereas here they get to go back and apply their lessons, but the, the world has changed. Uh, and so they need to apply their lessons and, and fix it. And actually, the chapter doesn't talk about how they, like, fix it, fix it, right? They're just getting rid of the bandits. There's a lot of talk on how do they regrow this place that's going to have to happen next chapter. But um, same basic idea. So I think that's – it's such a, a – um, it's such a unique book for this, isn't it, right? So The Hobbit, I think, is the more traditional standard way you would write this story. The Lord of the Rings – doesn't do what the hobbit does you don't get to just go back apply your lessons and that's it it's like everything's the same but you're stronger right Right. it's that these uh more higher ideas have like some real effect in the world and even you know there's this uh conversation near the end of the chapter where sam is discussing he's looking at uh the shire and he says um to frodo this is worse than mordor said sam much mm. worse in a way it comes home to you as they say because um it is home and you remember it before it was all ruined and then frodo says yes this is mordor 100 um, yeah. percent. 
Yeah, and so the idea that Mordor is it's an idea, right? Exactly. It's, right? Mordor is not just a place. It is it's all of these kinds of things. It's it's that it's the evil that tears down trees. It's the kind of like anti-social evil too. I I like that this theme is there too. That it's not just they tear up the trees and they pollute the river, but also they shut down inns. People don't get to spend time together anymore and socialize. Mm-hmm. I thought that was really interesting as well. And that's Mordor. Yeah, fire is illegal, right? Yeah. Which we've seen fire beer. be a symbol for illegal. a beer. Yeah. <laughs> they don't have any pipe weed. Um, right, yeah. But, you know, we've seen fire. Gandalf is a uh, a wielder of fire, right? And that fire is, there's this idea in the Lord of the Rings of fire being a symbol for um, like the soul. Um, mm-hmm. It's like the fire imperishable. And so that fire being illegal here uh, is actually something meaningful. Right, so you're not allowed to be an individual, or like you're not really supposed to be a uh, an agent. Right, you're more just a body. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, we have. Uh, well, I mean, let's the hobbits' response to it. Um, there's a lot of rule breaking, which is kind of odd for hobbits, right? Hobbits are right. very traditional, but but only rule breaking because Frodo, Sam, Mary, Pippin inspire it, right? That's right, right. But I mean, the rest uh, of the hobbits are hobbits cowed to yeah. these, yeah. Um, so they, they climb over this gate, uh, and they're gate breakers, right? Um, mm-hmm. and then they're physically dismantling signs that, that list these new rules that the hobbits must, uh, uh, abide by. Um, and there's this sort of, uh, it's kind of this interesting, uh, effect that is like very, it's like very Saruman in the Shire. Like there's this, um, uh, Saruman is this like weaver of, of lies or he's like his, um, his power is in convincing people of things. Um, mm-hmm. And so like there's like the, when they're arrested and they're not really right. But the, the hobbits who are the sheriff hobbits who are doing the arresting say like, well, as long as you, we all agree, we're arresting you. Right. And so it's this sort of disconnect from reality that's like taken over the Shire. Yeah. Like it's weird double speak stuff, right? Yeah. Oh, it's it's double speak. The bandits and the ruffians are called sharers, and they are, what's the quote? They are said. Uh, they they come for people's goods for quote for fair distribution. Right. Right. There's, so there's, there's kind a of lot like of, it's one of these chapters that I think is very distinctly 20th century with a lot of 20th century anxieties in this chapter. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that the gatherers and sharers thing is, is one of those, that, that question of how does the, I mean, I, I'm almost hesitant to say this because I, I don't want to get so too detailed specific, but it does to me feel like the kinds of questions and conflicts that the Western world, I suppose, the non-communist world mm-hmm. grappled with after the Second World War, right? Like, like questions yeah, absolutely. like how how almost socialist again i'm really hesitant to say like i'm not trying to say this book is anti-socialist or not but rather just that i really can feel those anxieties about that question in this dynamic they have here of these guys that get to run around collect things that they're they say they're going to redistribute to people but then they never do right like it does remind me of reading something like animal farm in in a lot of ways in reflecting those kinds of anxieties but it it was it was a very big deal in that sort of post second world war anti-soviet world where you saw that happen in the soviet union and then the eastern bloc more widely despite perhaps like good intentions uh and so you know there was always that fear like how how do we yeah how do we run societies and yet not do that right 
and yeah, I mean, here we see, like, just you know, we see Hobbit's king taken off to the gulag, right? Right. Yeah. Um, yeah, and it's, you know, it's kind of interesting this chapter too because you know we've talked about how um, so much of the Lord of the Rings is well, it's it has a lot of interesting things to say about tradition and uh, modernity mm-hmm. uh, because you have like a clear like negative representation of um, like industrialization, right? Right. Like Saruman and, and he's here. Right. And so mm-hmm. we're back to seeing that, but we also see a lot of the idea that tradition for tradition's sake is not right. the theme of Lord of the Rings. We had a chapter with Aragorn who basically said, okay, things are going to change. Um, mm-hmm. and you know, the, the struggles with Gondor about their, uh, people following orders just because those are their orders. Right. Yeah. And so this is, this is another chapter where that's kind of like switching, which, uh, kind of viewpoint, like you're getting a, a, another perspective, uh, shift, like back to looking at kind of the dangers of like, uh, industrialization and sort of a mo- like the dangers of something modern. Right. Mm-hmm. Because I, I, you know, it's, I feel like this book doesn't really, it doesn't really take a, a like, it, it's, it, sorry, it's this thing that sometimes happens when people read a text that offers something to think about is they think, ah, this text is taking a, you know, a one sentence argument and that's, that's what its thesis is, right? Where I feel like what's nice here is you're getting perspective on, on both of those ideas of tradition and the modern yeah. world. It's worth noting that this all sort of happens because if, if, if you put the pieces together at least, this really all happens because the rangers stop protecting the Shire. Right. I think that's worth pointing out. Like, they go off to fight the bigger conflict, but as a result, this has to happen to the Shire then. I think that's a criticism of the Shire too, right? That uh, for all of its good and beauty, it was always weak. It was, unpre- it was unprepared because it lacked that worldly knowledge to protect itself. Yeah, so you, I think you see that here. You know, As soon as outside protection goes, Shire goes, and it takes the hobbits who obtain that worldly knowledge to come back and put it to rights on that note too of what the hobbits come back with it's interesting that frodo comes back with this no killing mantra mm-hmm. uh i think we should we should spend a little bit of time on that i think it's um an important bit what i'm struck by with it is that frodo alone has it mary Pippin, and sam do not and the text gives us no reason to think that frodo is somehow more or less virtuous than those three if anything he has been revealed to have failed more than right right um, and he wants them not killed but they have to they mary and pippin are right when they say it's going to have to come to that and it does and they have to they have to do it i think that's interesting the, the book suggests that there's room for both of those viewpoints frodo's not wrong for thinking the way he thinks mary and pippin are not wrong for thinking the way they think they're both able to even accomplish what they want right mary i mean mary and pippin think you will have to you will have to kill some of these people and they're right, but Frodo's also right when he says we don't. There are some of them we don't have to kill unless absolutely, absolutely necessary or whatever. And he's kind of right. Like with Saruman, you know, he was gonna leave. <laughs> right. They kick Saruman out without having to kill him. Now Wormtongue does that, but even before that, right, he is going to leave. So they're both sort of proven right. I think it's interesting that both those viewpoints can coexist in some way. Yeah, it's like Frodo has achieved this sort of empathy for any wrongdoing having him he himself failed completely right or like i mean it's sort of like a human beings are have sin right Mm -hmm. and cannot be perfect but yeah frodo he himself has like gained this sort of empathy for anybody who is failing at being good yeah 
I do think the chapter does take the stance, though, both with Mary Pippin and with Frodo, that you should only have to kill if it's really just crucial and necessary. That Maybe that's the middle ground uh, between the two positions. Uh, I like this line from Frodo. This is actually my favorite line of chapter two. I'm going to read this. Um, he's talking about not killing Saruman, and he says, It is useless to meet revenge with revenge. It will heal nothing. And he's right. I mean, what would that do? Right? The damage is done. Saruman's ruined the Shire. They will have to rebuild it. They can kill him. What does it do? Like, you know what I'm saying? They're going to have to rebuild it no matter what. Now that he's sort of been found out and his humans have been kicked out, there's not much he can do anymore. Yeah. What's the point of bloodlust then, right? What's the point of vengeance and justice and things like that? It just It's not going to actually do anything. It, it will heal nothing. I, I think that's a... That's a great point. I think that's really reflective of the maturity the hobbits have now. Yeah. You know, and I really like what you said about it being present the this chapter presenting these two ideas without necessarily, you know, saying, and one of these is correct and the other one is real dumb. Um, right. Yeah. Yeah. It's real serious things that you have to consider. Yeah. Choices are uh, tough. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, oh, uh, while we're on the topic of Saruman's death, kind of interesting note that you get the same sort of uh, wind blowing him away thing that we talked about when mm-hmm. um, when Sauron was defeated, yeah. and the same goes back to when Tom Bombadil is talking to the white being blown away by the wind. Mm-hmm. Um, he looks west, and that would be towards uh, well heaven in this this world, yeah. um, and then he is blown away, similar to Sauron. Yeah, just dissolved. It's a powerful image, and it's a good reminder of Saruman's sort of inner self being uh, divine in some way. He's he is a, a Maya. He's an angelic being in a lot of ways, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I'm not keen on mapping Tolkien's cosmology one to one on any kind of cosmology, religious cosmology, or something from our world, but that would be maybe the best equivalent uh, if you're looking for one. Uh, so it's cool to see that, right? That mist rise out and that's probably like his true self right uh rising up there and blown away and, and his how, throat how was cut. could it look west i think that's interesting right like how it's a mist how can you tell where it's looking you, oh i imagine it like it's like his body right but oh in, really in a mist form oh, yeah okay. um but you know and worth noting his throat is cut you know uh and that's where his power comes from is his voice oh i didn't catch that that's nice yeah so to to, to wrap up i guess like all my the only thing, things I had left to say about the, the themes here is um, last chapter we talked about, or last episode, uh, we talked about the, this question of is the Shire, was the Shire a bad thing? Right. And I just want to return to that for a minute. Have we changed our take on this in light of this chapter? Because I, I guess what I was thinking in this chapter was because of the Shire lacking that worldliness that made it prone to falling for this kind of corruption – isn't that kind of a, a problem? So much of this book has made the point that human beings, including hobbits, are inherently prone to corruption, mm-hmm. as evidenced by the ring will get everybody eventually, even Frodo in the end, and you just can't stop it. And the Shire here is, it's almost the same thing playing out with the Shire. It, it was inevitably going to be corrupted itself for all of its idyllic uh, happiness. <laughs> mm-hmm. it, it, it wasn't. It was not immune to those kinds of temptations. So I don't know. It gives me like a slightly more negative view of the Shire. But as we talked about last episode, it's the power of the Shire 
and what it stands for that propels people like Sam. It, it, that's what needs to be protected. And Aragorn does reinstate it. Uh, I guess after this chapter, that'll come next episode maybe, but he does reinstate it and protect it, right? He wants the Shire there. Yeah, you know, I, I think the you know most common take is that there's something wrong with the Shire um, mm-hmm. and that, uh, you know, it's a criticism of maybe the Hobbits being too, too insular. Yeah. Um, but actually, I think I have, like, through this reading, I I think of it sort of still the way we are talking about last episode, where I think of the Shire as something still good, but it's just that perhaps it's a fact of life that good things are can be vulnerable, and from time to time they'll need to be protected uh, or defended and or fixed, um, and that perhaps they aren't permanent definitely that they aren't permanent right that the shire can't last and that once the hobbits leave they can't truly go back and it's going to be changed uh, no matter what i do think that's absolutely a big part of it something we have again touched upon in previous episodes but it is still worth reiterating i think it's such an important fundamental point of the lord of the rings whatever your shire is whether that's your childhood whether that was a really great moment in your life you are not going to get it back you can't can't go back and whatever that time is maybe had some problems like maybe one of the reasons it was good was out of a sort of ignorance is bliss idea with it and that's maybe why it couldn't last as well so you know the innocence you have as a child that maybe made you happy a lot of people you know believe they were happier as as children well you are also ignorant <laughs> as a, right. a child um and so you then inevitably were forced out of that which is in itself a problem and you also can't go back because of that. And that's a problem. You need to somehow be able to sort of come back, not to the exact same place because you can't, but you need to sort of create your own shire. You need to be able to go out in the world, learn the lessons, and f- create your shire, find your shire, whatever that, that that's going to be. And I think that's what the hobbits are doing here, essentially. They're not going to be able to recreate it one-to-one. And yeah. it, it's, it's almost better for them, right? It's better that they couldn't, it's better that they don't come back and it's identical. It, it's better that it's corrupted now. They need to rebuild it into a stronger, more solid sort of foundation and, and, and contentment. Yeah, I see them as not even building a shire for themselves, but they are now here to protect it for someone else. Okay, yeah. Yeah, and that's like all I have to the do. other hobbits or something? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Okay, yeah. Well, let's all head for the themes of this chapter. Yeah, let's th- let's start now going point by point of the events. No, I'm just okay. kidding. <laughs> uh, line by line, please. <laughs> I, I do say, you know, I have some problems with this chapter. Can I tell you my problems? Oh, please do. Because I, I think there, there are two of them. One is I alluded to earlier how this chapter has not alluded to. I just say, I stated it outright. I said the chapter has these distinctly 20th century anxieties in it. I, I don't like those being in the chapter. I do think it dates the book a little bit. Just slightly. I think there's a way maybe the book could have used those or addressed those themes without to me again sounding so clearly like 1950s uh Hmm. and i don't know maybe that's just me but i wasn't a super fan so much the rest of this book is so timeless like you wouldn't be able to guess when it was written for 99.9 percent of this book when i see those lines i think ah 1950s got you you know what i'm saying Um, yeah or at least like 1940s like you know the sort of mid 20th century world so i don't know didn't like that uh, a whole lot but that's just me yeah you know that didn't bother me so yeah it's not the worst i can get over it what it does feed into maybe a bigger issue here though which is that i don't think the chapter itself is super 
well written. It's terms... not as tight. Yeah, I think the language is weird. And so when I compare it to, I think it's closest cousins in writing style in within Tolkien's own writings in his body work, you have The Hobbit and you have the beginning of Lord of the Rings, sort of book one, right? Are most going to be most comparable. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't feel like either of those. Like, I feel like I can read The Hobbit and it's very smooth. I feel like I can read most of book one of Lord of the Rings and it's very smooth and it's very funny. And here, a lot of it doesn't work for me the hobbit speak and the attempted humor of the hobbits right because they are inherently funny uh, with mm-hmm. what they do um and it's just not working as well in this chapter i feel i don't know so I, i'm just not as big a fan of the writing uh can i give you some examples here i guess yeah go ahead to, to uh, burnish my point um okay so in this exchange that i'm about to read frodo is talking to these ruffians and he says well i have bad news for you that guy saruman that's been funding you he is a beggar in the wilderness. The king is also back in power. He's going to send messengers, all this stuff. And the guy responds to him. He says, the man stared at him and smiled. A beggar in the wilderness, he mocked. Oh, is he indeed? Swagger it, swagger it, <laughs> swagger it, swagger it, my little cockawoop. But that won't stop us living in this fat little country where you have lazed long enough. And he snapped his fingers in Frodo's face. King's messengers, that for them. When I see one, I'll take notice, perhaps. This was too much for Pippin. His thoughts went back to the field of Cormallon, and here was a squint-eyed rascal calling the ring bearer Little Cockawoop. <laughs> it's just weird. I don't know. Yeah. I'm just not on board with this. It feels too wordy. The the language being used here, I know the hobbits speak, the hobbits and I guess these men speak in sort of weird dialects that are not things we know about or would use today, but it's still weird. And then um, the, the other one I wanted to read that I didn't like was when Sam goes off to find... I'm going to flip my pages here. Um, when Sam goes off to find the Cotton family. Right, Rosie's family. Yeah, Rosie Cotton's family. And they just have like weirdly long, prolonged back and forths that uh, maybe are funny, but I don't know. They, they just don't come across as quite right to me. So when he goes to see them, he hurries to the Cotton's family's house to check on them. And when Rosie sees him... She says, hello, Sam, said Rosie. Where have you been? They said you were dead, but I've been expecting you since the spring. You haven't hurried, have you? Perhaps not, said Sam abashed. But I'm hurrying now. We're setting about the ruffians, and I've got to get back to Mr. Frodo. But I thought I'd have a look and see how Mrs. Cotton was keeping. And you, Rosie? We're keeping nicely, thank you, said Mrs. Cotton. Or should be, if it weren't for these thieving ruffians. Well, be off with you, said Rosie. If you've been looking after Mr. Frodo all this while, what do you want to leave him for as soon as things look dangerous? This was too much for Sam. It needed a week's answer or none. He turned away and mounted his pony, but as he started off, Rosie ran down the steps. I think you look fine, Sam, she said. Go on now, but take care of yourself and come straight back as soon as you have settled the ruffians. So I know what he's trying to do here, right? Like the hobbits are still, for all the trouble they're in, still rustic and kind of simple. I don't know. It just doesn't work. It's the pros is off. Yeah. Yeah. There are some funny moments that I do want to give him credit for. There was the when they're get when they're arrested and uh the the wording there is pretty funny uh where frodo says i happen to be going to bag end on business but if you insist on going too well that is your affair very well mr baggins said the leader pushing the barrier aside but don't forget i've arrested you right like that's funny so he's perfectly capable of it when he wants to to have that sort of hobbit wit and kind of low-key humor it's like rye you know yeah i mean i i would agree that this prose wise is not the richest chapter 
Yeah. Like, it was hard for me to find a favorite line. You know, I said it earlier about the that revenge one, but even that's not super well written, necessarily. Yeah, and I actually read mine as well, too, because there was kind of yeah. slim picking. The one with uh, Frodo saying, yes, this is Mordor. Yeah, both good lines, but both not... Lines. Uh, I don't know. I mean, shoot. Look at books. Look throughout book one. We had lines just jumping off the page constantly and here it's kind of like uh well they're okay i guess i don't know we have a couple decent ones so it's 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 a a a weird ending it's an event heavy chapter event yeah i'd yeah that's fair it's it's definitely it's not the best necessarily for the for the pros but the events are important as i hope as i hope we've uh explained it's a theme heavy chapter too right like it's yeah it weirdly kind of mix of those two yeah well so charles we have covered book six chapter eight what Mm -hmm. does that make next uh so next is the last chapter in the entire book and it's a i think it's a very good one so i'm excited to talk about about this last chapter in the book um book six chapter nine the gray havens we're going to do that uh we're also going to put out a sort of conclusion or epilogue episode where we need to consider the book as a whole so i want you know next episode should really be about the chapter and really just zeroing in on that chapter but uh, we are going to talk about the book as a whole in one final episode after that. Um, so stay tuned. Look forward to that. Look forward, forward that. You know what I'm saying. Uh, I hear you. But yeah, we're almost done. It's incredible. I'm excited for the next chapter. I think it's really good, like I said. And it helps sort of redeem some of my problems with this previous chapter. Overall, I don't want to sound too harsh. I do think The Lord of the Rings has a really good ending. I like how unique it is. And I like the themes that are being said. I just think this one chapter is a little poorly written but uh he redeems himself next chapter uh so well then listeners you must tune in because you know something good is coming yeah well and also it's the the last two episodes (laughs) if you've made it this far (laughs) and you say you know what i can't i I don't want to listen to anymore i don't know you got a problem well um on that note (laughs) problem (laughs) listeners uh join us next time for uh book six Chapter 9, The Grey Havens.